All right, let's get into the word together. Um, Luke 22 is where we are today. Uh, the very end of Luke 22, so you're looking for verse 66. We're also going to read into chapter 23. Uh, during our time in college, um, Molly and I both had the opportunity to be involved with um, campus ministry group called the Navigators. Anyone else out there involved with the Navs? Okay, awesome. Yes, all right. Even if you haven't been involved with the Navigators, uh, you probably have, have heard of the heard of the Navigators. Um, we still have a, a deep love uh, for people involved in the Nav ministry and the work they do on college campuses. You know, there there are lots of different kinds of campus ministry, right? Some of you have been involved with Crew, InterVarsity, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Each group is known for like its own thing. Navs are known for. Scripture memorization, right? The little packets that we carry around with us. And there's, if you get involved with the NAVs before long, someone is handing you a little packet of verses and saying, hey, as part of your spiritual development, you need to feed your mind on the word. Memorize these verses. And they have a plan for you. It's not random. And one of the very first verses that you memorize when you get involved with the Navigators Fellowship is Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So many things that we could unpack from that one verse, but I want to focus for just a second on that middle part. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Think about it. Think about what Paul is saying. I I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. Christians believe that by faith in Jesus, we actually receive a new life from God. Not a renovated life. Like the person that you see standing here by faith in Jesus, I am not Matt 2.0. I'm not just a better version of myself. I actually receive a new life from God. And every Christian receives the same new life from God. It is the life of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's true for all Christians. It's also a little bit hard to understand. Like, how does that happen? Christ lives in me. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. How does all that stuff work out? And what is this Christ life, Christ life like? This life that Jesus is living in me now, what is it like? Well, we've been studying it. That's what we've been doing for almost two years now, is studying the values of the kingdom of God. This new Christ life is a life that lives by the values of the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Love your enemies and pray for them. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's a life that wants to worship God and not all the other things that we could worship. And we could go on and on. So this new Christ life wants to live out the values of the kingdom of God. There's a definite set of values 
And this Christ life in us wants to live them out. Now, that's the ideal, okay? That, that is the ideal. Now, the issue we're dealing with this morning is that we have so much opposition and so many problems with living out the Christ life. Everything outside of us, and even a lot of things inside of us, are opposed to the Christ life being lived out. We're going to talk about three of them today, three things that oppose the Christ life being lived out in us. There are more than three. The reason that we're talking about these three is because these three, these three dynamics are the dynamics that got Jesus killed. These are the three dynamics that were in play when the actual life of Christ was killed. These three dynamics all conspired to put Jesus to death. And what we're noticing, what we're noticing is that these three dynamics still conspire to put the Christ life to death in us. Does that make sense? Okay. That's where we're going today is what are these things that just kill the Christ life and keep us from living out the life of Jesus that we want to. Let's read the scripture first and then uh, we'll get into it. I'm just going to invite you to remain seated for the scripture reading today. Um, We're reading through the account of the trials. Okay, it's going to be more lengthy um, than typical, but Jesus is going to appear before three different bodies, right? The Jewish ruling council and then Herod. And then Pilate, okay? And that's going to form the framework for these three dynamics that put the Christ life to death. The Jewish council, then Herod, and then Pilate. This is what we find, Luke twenty-two sixty-six. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. So this is the council. They led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not Believe, And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, so they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. 
and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Amen. This is the word of God. The first thing that seeks to kill the Christ life in me. Let's get to the three just going to walk through these different appearances of Jesus. The first thing that seeks to kill the Christ life in me, this life of the values of the kingdom of God that I seek to live out, it, first thing is my own hard heart. Right? Some of the things that oppose the Christ life are external. The first one we're talking about is internal. My own hard heart. We see this in the Jewish council. We see it as they oppose Jesus and they seek to put him to death. How do we know that their hearts are hard? Notice that they are not opening, they are not open to considering the answers that Jesus might give to their questions. They're not open to correction. They're not open to reason. They're not open to arguments from the scriptures. They've already made up their minds. Jesus knows that they've already made up their minds. We see that in verse 67. They say, they ask him a question, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. He knows that they've already decided what they think is true. They've already decided that Jesus cannot be the Christ. Christ means God's anointed one. They have decided this man cannot be God's anointed one. He cannot be the Christ because he breaks their Sabbath traditions and he criticizes them and their motives. They've already decided that they're the ones who are on God's side. They're the ones who represent God to people. Like, we have God, we minister, to, we minister God to people. If Jesus is opposing us, he therefore, ipso facto, cannot be on God's side. If he's opposing us... Jesus knows they've made up their minds. Their hearts are completely hardened. He may as well be talking to a brick wall. He, he knows that. It would get the same result if he just talks to a brick wall. Their religion is settled. 
and they're wrong. They're settled and they're wrong. You may be settled in your religion. You may have all of your I's dotted, all of your T's crossed, all your positions ironed out. You may be very settled. There's just one more question to ask. Are you wrong? Are you both settled and wrong with a a heart that's getting harder and harder and harder? Colder and colder and colder. And all the while you're thinking you're certainly right and you're on God's side, okay? We all have to admit that's possible. If, if we value the scriptures as the word of God we, and we understand our own heart, we have to admit that that's at least possible because it happened with them. Like the ones that knew the scriptures best, that's the position that they were in. Could it be happening in, in your life and keeping the beautiful Christ life from being lived out in you? What do, I, what do I mean? I'll explain a little bit more about what I'm talking about or what, what it might look like to be settled and wrong in our religion. The longer that we are uh, involved with church and participate in a church, the more that we can develop a sense of propriety. The more we can develop a feeling that certain traditions and forms and behaviors and practices that are not essential to the faith are right. Right with a capital R. We can develop a strong feeling that there's a set of traditions to be protected and, and a, a strict picture of what godliness looks like. Saying that the longer you're part of a church, the, the more it's possible that you developed a very strict picture of what true godliness will look like. Okay? Thought exercise. Is this your picture of true godliness? It, it will be a person who's dressed nicely, who comes in. This is what true godliness looks like, right? A person who's dressed nicely, who comes into this room with a large Bible and a lot of knowledge, who um, uses the right terminology and doesn't use other certain words, who goes to the right places and avoids going to the wrong places, spends their time with certain people and doesn't spend their time with other people, eats this and not that, drinks this and not that, Watches this and not that. Spends their money this way and not that way. That this is what true godliness, when we see that person, that that's what true godliness looks like. I'm not saying that any of those things are wrong. I'm saying that all these things can also mask a life that is not godly at all. That someone can be doing all those things And there can be all this inner rot on the inside. And at the same time, we can also begin to look down on someone who is really godly. But they don't conform to our picture of godliness. And this is exactly what happened in the case of the Jewish ruling council. They did all the right things. They knew all the right things. 
They avoided all the right things. They wore the impressive clothes. But all that outward impressiveness just masked this huge inner rot. And when Jesus showed up, God in the flesh, who could be more godly than this person who's God in the flesh? When he showed up, he did not match their picture of true godliness. He did the wrong things on the Sabbath. He ate with the wrong people. And the Jewish council had a strict picture of what true godliness looks like. And it kept them from recognizing God. That's the irony, is that their picture of what godliness looked like kept them from recognizing God. When God came among them. And it keeps getting worse. Not only did they not recognize God when he came among them, they killed him. They were so opposed to what they saw when true godliness came. They were so opposed to it that they killed him. That's how calcified they had become in their religion. How did that happen? They were custodians of the law. All the truth from God had been poured into their lives. How did they get to that point where when God came, true godliness among them, that instead of loving it, they hated it and killed it. How did they get there? Well, one reason that it happened is that they stopped seeing themselves as the ones in need of grace. Other people needed grace. Other people were bad and needed God's grace, but not them. They were the good guys and the protectors of the truth, okay? Is that how you have come to view yourself, as one of the good guys and the protector of the truth? I think a lot of us have some soul-searching to do. We have to ask ourselves, am I I protecting Traditions and forms and a strict picture of Christianity and it's keeping me from true godliness? The church can never forget that it was calcified religion that killed Jesus, not the secular state. The secular state, as we saw here, pleaded over and over and over to have him released. And calcified religion said, no. Kill him. What does that tell us today, 2024, with everything going on out there? It tells us that whatever's going on out there that might put pressure on us as Christians, the greatest threat has always been and will always be ourselves. It's in here. Are we, are we promoting and representing a true picture of God? Christianity has thrived under persecution. But if, if we don't represent God well and truly, who is left to spread the gospel? We have to start with our own Heart. Now, that's, that's all hard to hear. Let's say something positive. What's the opposite of all this? There is a continual freshness in the Christ life, this life of 
life of the Son of God that wants to live itself out through us. There's a continual freshness to it. What do I mean by that freshness? Well, it looks like this. We wake up every morning in need of the grace of God because we know that we have not lived up to the ideal of loving, loving neighbor and loving God as we should. We apply to God to receive that grace. We thank God for that grace that's come to even me. And then we let that grace flow through our lives to other people who are in need of that grace. And so the Christian life is always fresh because we're always applying to God for the grace that we need. And we're receiving that and giving thanks for it. And then we're letting it flow to other people, other imperfect people that need to see grace. And so there's this continual flow of grace through the Christian life. And it leads to love of God because he gives us this grace. And it will lead to love of neighbor by extending grace to them. That's how we stay fresh and we don't get stale, we don't get settled and calcified. If you want to live out the Christ life, make sure that grace is flowing freely through your life. first obstacle to living out the Christ life is my own hard heart. Second obstacle to be overcome is something we see in the middle, this guy named Herod. It's a dynamic that we could call Christianity as, a, as an intellectual pursuit only. This is the second dynamic that will kill the Christ life in us, is viewing Christianity as an intellectual pursuit only. Herod was a guy that was riding the coattails of his dad. Okay? He had a famous father who was also named Herod. This gets really confusing. His father, Herod the Great, was the one who was alive when Jesus was born that, that killed the young boys in the Bethlehem area. The, the one that tricked the wise men, that was Herod the Great. When he died, his kingdom was divided into four parts. One of those four parts was ruled by his son, Antipas. So Herod Antipas is this guy who we meet in Luke 23. He's the one that killed John the Baptist. Read about that earlier in the Gospel of Luke. Rome is allowing this Herod to govern a segment of the population. A segment that includes Galilee, where Jesus is from. And so that's, that's how he gets into the picture today. Now, the important question for us today is, how did this Herod feel about Jesus? What did he think? What was his interest in Jesus? We have an insight into that at verse 8, 23, 8, that when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but he made no answer. Okay, so here's a man that some of us will be able to identify with. Uh, To him, Jesus is little more than an intellectual curiosity. You, You know, if it's not irreverent, we could also say that he might even view Jesus as a source of entertainment. You know, just as, um, His wife's daughter came and was dancing and awarded the head of John the Baptist, right? This Herod wants to be entertained. Let's bring Jesus before us and maybe he'll do something exciting. He had no interest in changing his lifestyle. Okay? He enjoyed all the best things in life. He wasn't about to give any of that up. 
you remember what happens when Jesus encounters people with wealth, and when people with wealth ask him a question, the rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Sell all you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. So it's an invitation to be like Jesus. Um, Herod's not going to sign up for that. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want to live like Jesus. He just wants to study Jesus. Okay, do you see the dynamic that's forming here and how this is going to relate to our lives? We see someone who doesn't want to live like Jesus. He just wants to study Jesus. He wants to examine him. And he does examine him. But he comes away from the encounter unchanged. He does form a new relationship that day. Herod made a new friend. The tragic thing is that on the day he finally met Jesus, he forms a new friendship, but his new friendship is not with Jesus, it's with Pilate. And the danger that we face as believers or maybe as those considering the claims of Christianity, is viewing Christianity only as a religion to be studied and not a lifestyle to be lived out. In other words, there can be a studying of Jesus, but not a following of Jesus. That's what we're in danger of doing. Now, look, the danger is there. The danger that we might always just be studying Jesus and never living like him. The danger is there, like, for a good reason. It's because God and Jesus are so interesting. Theology is the most wonderful subject there is. You can never get to the end of it. You, the study of Jesus, his person and work, there's nothing more exciting you, you realize as you think you get closer to the bottom that the bottom keeps getting further away. It is the, the greatest thing to expand the mind, as Spurgeon once said. But that can keep us in this cycle of always being a learner and always just studying. There's all this wonder and joy in just contemplating Jesus. That's why it's so tricky. He's so interesting, Jesus we're talking about, so interesting even to a person like Herod that just studying him in his life can become an end in itself. And many of us make that our end, even if we wouldn't admit it. Bible study can become an idol. Bible study is good. I want you to study and read your Bible more and more. Bible study is good. Bible study can become an idol. Knowledge can become an idol. How can I say those things? Because anything that's not God can become an idol. Even good things, especially good things. And God alone should be worshipped. And when that happens, when for you and me, our form of Christianity majors on intellectual achievement and minors on lived out sacrificial love, that's when the Christ life is stymied in us. Don't ever forget that the one who knew God best served God the most. That was Jesus. The one who knew him best, the one who knew everything about God, the one who had mastered theology, was also the servant of all, the one who served the most and to the greatest extent. So if 
in your Bible study, if what you're learning in Bible study isn't finding an outlet practically, if you're studying the scriptures but not embodying the scriptures, this is a day to to think that over and make a, a course correction. Christianity as an intellectual pursuit only was one of the dynamics that led to the death of Jesus and still puts, to, still puts the Christ life to death in us. You know, Paul writes about this. We get puffed up and puffed up with knowledge and Paul's always pointing us toward love, 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 love. The goal of our doctrine is love. All right, last thing. We're talking about what kills the Christ life in us. We've got a hard heart inside of us might be tempted to view Christianity just as an intellectual exercise and not a practical, lived-out, sacrificial life. The last one that we see, and this is in Pilate, last thing that can put to death the Christ life in us is the allure of expediency. The allure of expediency. Expediency is what happens when we do something we know is wrong. Or we, we fail to stand up for what's right. Because it helps us avoid some really thorny problems. Practically, it kind of works out well for us to do the wrong thing. Or to keep our mouth shut. When we purposefully do not stand for truth or purposefully do what we know is wrong because it's helpful to us in some practical sense, we have done what is expedient. And we have the example par excellence of all time in Pontius Pilate. Pilate, who three times rightly declares that Jesus is innocent and yet in the end decides to have Jesus Crucified. He makes a deliberate decision to not grant justice to Jesus. Why? What causes him to do what he knows is wrong? Let's look at these words again. It's so instructive. It could be a, a whole Series of sermons just on Luke 23, verse 23. The response of the crowd, the chief priests, and the rulers of the people. This is what we read. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. What caused their demand to be granted rather than justice to be granted to Jesus? According to the passage, it was persistence. They would not stop. It was volume. Their their cries were loud. And it was their attitude. They were urgent. Persistence and volume and attitude. Pilate was swayed by persistence and volume and attitude. There were going to be problems for him if he didn't 
give in to their will. There was gonna, he was going to have a riot on his hands. If there's one thing that Rome did not want to get involved in, it's the people rioting in a breaking of the peace. Keeping the peace was really good, and so he did. And in the process, he killed Christ. He killed Christ to keep the peace. Now what we want to do is notice how the same thing can happen in my life and in yours. The Christ life in us can be killed by the allure of expediency. We keep the peace by not standing for what we know is right, by not speaking up. We can maybe, if we keep the peace and just keep our head down, keep our mouth shut, maybe we save ourselves. Maybe we save our income. Maybe we save our family, we save our church by doing the expedient thing. But in order to do so, we kill the Christ life. The Christ life is the life within us that will stand alone for what is right. It is prepared to suffer the consequences for standing for truth. That's what's hap- That's the Jesus that you see standing in these verses alone. That is the life that Jesus will live out in you if you allow it. The problem is it might cost you everything. There is always an allure toward doing the expedient thing, just looking the other way, thinking someone else will deal with this. Doesn't matter if I speak up, not going to change anything. We just keep our head down, keep our mouth shut. To avo- we avoid people problems. We avoid job problems. We avoid all these practical problems that might arise from speaking Standing, refusing to compromise. Look, I don't know which one of these three that we've talked about is the most difficult for you. Like the hard-heartedness or pursuing intellectual Christianity only. I don't know if maybe this one is the hardest for you, expediency. This one is the hardest for me, at least right now. Probably this one is the one that's most difficult for most pastors today. Because speaking biblical truth from the pulpit puts you in the crosshairs of everybody. The state, yes, of course, secular authorities. But it even puts you in the crosshairs of most Christians who don't really want to hear what the scripture says if it conflicts with their deeply held values and traditions that might not be so biblical. They don't want to hear that either. Prophet is usually not popular with anyone. Just, just if you doubt that what I'm saying is true, just look at the Old Testament and say, "Who loved the prophets? <laughs> Ahab? No. People of God? Also, no. There they were in the middle, right? That's me. That's you. That's what the Christ life looks like. It stands in the crosshairs of everything. It is costly." To preach the truth of this book. And there's the allure of expediency, right? If I don't say what it really says, I can keep my job. I think most of us pastors are probably in line for either unemployment or incarceration. Or or both. 
I just want to encourage you, if you, as you put your positions out there, as you have conversations with people and you talk about where you stand relative to social issues, economic issues, political issues, if suddenly you feel like, you know, I think I'm kind of in the middle here and everybody's mad at me. I don't really fit nicely in this category or this one. And I'm not sure that other people, my neighbors, who may not really care about any of it, I'm not really sure that they like me either. I just want to encourage you. You may be right in that sweet spot of Jesus Christ, opposed by everybody. Because this is so hard, and Christians don't want to hear it. And this is so hard, and the secular state doesn't want to hear it. There may be nothing wrong with you. That's a good exercise for us all to think about today. Like, are my interests and my views aligned with Jesus Christ? There's lots of dangers to the Christ life out there. Um, We've talked about three of them today. Christ life is fresh, grace running through, it's practical, it's theology lived out, not just studied. And it's convictional. It's willing to stand alone if necessary. And um, let's not settle for what is settled, intellectual, and expedient. Right? Those are the enemies of the Christ life. Settled, intellectual only, and expedient. I've done all three of those at different times in my life, by the way. I'm guilty of all of those things. I'm working on the fresh, the practical, the convictional so the Christ life can be lived out in me and also in you. Lord, uh, help us, empower us, give us courage. All of us gathered here say, we really want this life of Christ to be lived out in us. That is the beautiful life that we want others to see. But we also recognize we have all these enemies, all these obstacles to having it happen. Give us the gift of humility and repentance today. Thank you for the gift of Jesus who has fulfilled the Christ life perfectly. So that this is not a striving to try to earn your favor by living this way. Jesus has already done that. He has done it perfectly. We are just followers, often struggling, but applying once again for grace today. And we ask in Jesus' holy name, amen.